Well, I forgot to announce something exciting uh, in my vision moment, and that is that a generous donor from within the congregation has uh, given $20,000 so that we can have a new AV system installed for the church. We can have a screen and actual sound system that um, is set up for this room and, and things of that nature. So praise God for that. I just wanted to uh, encourage you guys with that news. And the Lord provides for us in various ways. Uh, he provides for us physical things that we need, and he provides for us spiritual things uh, that we need as well. Um, did you know that the word Christianity is never mentioned once in the scriptures? Uh, but did you know that Jesus talked about something more often than anything else in his preaching? And that is the kingdom of God, or, or called the kingdom of heaven. Matthew enjoyed using the terminology kingdom of heaven, and other gospels, they use the kingdom of God. In fact, the, the, the phrase kingdom of God or an equivalent term is used 142 times in the New Testament. Richard Pratt, John Frame, N.T. Wright would say that the kingdom of God or the lordship of God, which comes from the idea of the kingdom of God, is the meta-narrative or the big idea in all of the Bible, the kingdom of God. I've got to admit to you, though, that growing up, I went to church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, generally speaking, unless I had a baseball game. And uh, I never heard about the kingdom of God. I mean, it would be referenced here and there as we went through Jesus' preaching. But understanding the kingdom of God as a main or the main idea in the Bible or in the New Testament was completely foreign to me and still, until I was in my first year of seminary and we started unpacking this, that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else, that the New Testament, the kingdom of God, 142 times or thereabouts mentioned in the New Testament. Did you know that Jesus only ever used the word church once when he was teaching? One time, Matthew 16, 18, when he says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Um, I don't know if he was talking about Peter. We can talk about that at a different time. But uh, the point of that is Jesus only used the word church one time, but he talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, a ton. And so the kingdom was very important to Jesus. Now, should we derive from that that the church is comparatively unimportant to Jesus? Well, no, that's not the right way to go either. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, but it's the church that came. Jesus came preaching the kingdom, but it's the church that came. What do we derive from that? What we should derive from that is Jesus is intensely interested in his church manifesting the values of his kingdom. If the kingdom of God is what Jesus preached about, and it's the church that came in the New Testament writers after Jesus write a ton about the church. The church is very important in the New Testament. But the church is what Jesus had in his mind for the church insofar as the kingdom values of Christ, which are represented in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is directly head-on, drives a train through these values and shows us exactly what he cares about and what he wants his church to care about. What is the kingdom of God and how can we understand it? The kingdom of God refers not so much to a new place, it refers to a new way. A new way. It's a new way of organizing a new society, the church, under the reign of a new king, Jesus. 
It's a new way of organizing a new society, the church, under the reign of a new king, Jesus. If we in the church are actually going to be the church that Jesus envisioned as he was preaching, we must look like these values. In fact, if the church is not looking like the kingdom of God and the values that Jesus described, then there's really no hope for the world to ever see these values demonstrated in real life unless it's found in this new society of the church. Today we're talking about the truth, this, this value of Jesus. Blessed are the hungry, for you will be satisfied. This is Luke's second blessing, and he always in Luke, it's com- compared to Matthew, Luke includes a woe for us. He includes the corollary or the opposite. If you're not hungry uh, and you'll be satisfied, Jesus says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Matthew adds a little bit more than Luke, though, in his description. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for you will be filled. So we're going to talk about this blessing-woe combination of what it looks like to be hungry or what it looks like to be full now, on the other hand. Just so you know, I found this out a few years ago, that my mom prayed this prayer over me and my brother a lot, almost every day. She prayed that I would hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a great prayer to pray. I'm so grateful for that. That's a great prayer to pray for your kids. Um, when you're going through life and, and you're wondering what's going on in their hearts, pray that they would hunger and thirst for righteousness. So as I did last week, let's start by breaking down the world's perspective on hunger, that the world would look at hunger and say it's a bad thing or a hard thing. Now we're going to flip it after that, and we're going to look at the kingdom reversal of Jesus, where Jesus says that hunger is actually a good thing from his perspective. And then we're going to talk about how to apply that new kingdom value in our lives. What does it look like to live as hungry people hungering after the righteousness of Jesus in real life? So first of all, the worldly approach to hunger. Let me pray for us as we jump into this. Lord God, I pray that you would, as Mark just prayed, God, would you pierce through all of the noise and all the distraction and the tiredness and the busyness of our lives. Lord, we're here because we want to know you. We're here because we want to know your word. But we admit that often we have a hard time understanding it, a hard time receiving it. So I just pray, God, that you would do a spiritual work in our hearts and enable us to have faith, enable us to have ears to hear your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the worldly approach to hunger is that it's a bad thing. It's a hard thing if you're hungry. Because we think of deprivation, and deprivation is not something that we want. The worldly approach is a good thing would be being full, because being full would lead to comfort. So nutritionists have told us, perhaps in an overly dramatized way, that you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Of course, in a physical sense, this is true. If you load up on a lot of soda, a lot of beer, I eat a lot of cookies, and you just don't eat in a healthy way, you can see the, the, the manifestation of that. You become what you eat, and, and it's not good. Uh, but you are what you eat perhaps holds even more true for us spiritually. We become what we consume. And when we hunger for the wrong things and fill our lives with the wrong things, spiritually in the realm of the soul, 
it impacts us in a very negative way. And as we become what we eat, it's not a pretty sight. If a sculptor were to sculpt a 21st century man or woman to represent the ideas of our age, he might sculpt that man or woman hugging themselves, you know, trying to affirm ourselves uh, so that we feel better about life. Or he might sculpt that man or woman feeding themselves uh, different uh, media, something, maybe apps, uh, different streaming services from your smartphones. This is the world we live in. We're told that the worst thing that you can do is to admit to yourself that you're hungry. Don't ever get to a point where you feel unsatisfied because you have a limitless range of options for you available in entertainment and media. You can always pull out your phone. I'm amazed when I'm, when I'm waiting in a line, and I do it too, when I'm waiting in a line or I'm at my kid's game. I mean, everybody is just glued right in. We never even have a time to think about the fact. We, we don't want to let ourselves deal with the fact that we actually are hungry in our souls. And this, this continuous stream of, of whatever we're plugging into our lives, it, it could be something like food or drink for sure, but it's also just the stream of media content that is constantly going on that doesn't even allow us to rest for long enough to ask the question, what am I hungry for our cultural icons, singers, artists, actors, athletes, megachurch pastors, they chart a telling course for us. If you become what you eat, if you are what you eat, eventually we see in public display the, the lives of these celebrities out there in public maximized on a screen for us. We see what happens when you try to fill your life and you have everything that you could possibly dream of. You see the result of that. Elvis Presley in his day had more money than pretty much anybody alive. He had all the latest gadgets. He had all the latest clothes, all the latest cars, and he died a miserable man. The friends around him could not believe that Elvis, he was, he was, he was large and bloated, and he had everything, and he was miserable at the end of his life. Society tells us to do anything but to stop and feel the pain of actually being hungry. The reality is we were created with a God-shaped void in our lives that only God can fill. David Foster Wallace insightfully said he's a late postmodern novelist who ended up committing suicide. He said before he died, he said, if you feast on something besides God, it will eat you alive. If you feast on something besides God, it will eat you alive. And we are always plugging in God's substitutes into our hearts. But there's good news for us here, even though Jesus' words to us may seem harsh. He's telling us what's true. He's telling us that you're actually hungry for something that's not a created thing. You can't plug any created thing into that God-shaped void in your life. You cannot consume anything that is created and look to it and say, and idolize that and put it at the center of your life and say, give me joy give me meaning, give me success, give me love. It never works. And Jesus is kindly telling us that you are hungry, but your hunger can only be satisfied in something that was not created. It can only be satisfied in your creator. Now, this does not mean at all that there is nothing good that's out there for your enjoyment. Not at all. Everything God created was good when he created it. If you think about relationships, relationships are great. 
praise God for relationships. But if you idolize a relationship or a set of relationships and you put those relationships into the center of your soul and you say, give me what I want, it will own you and it will ruin you. Think about sex. Sex is something that God created that is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. If it's, if it's within two people in marriage, a man and a woman as God, God created it to be. But if you take sex outside of marriage and you're looking for it in the wrong place or you're looking for it all the time, it will absolutely own you and ruin you. Think about the hunger we have for comfort and security. These are great things. In the new heavens and the new earth, you will be comfortable and you will be secure. God values comfort and security. But if you look to comfort and security to be your God substitute and you say, serve me, I must have you, you will never find comfort and security. Think about having children and our desire for them to know the Lord and walk with the Lord. That is a beautiful desire. It's a God-given desire. But if you put that pressure on your child constantly, if you put that pressure on them and say, oh, how are you doing? And you're just smothering them and helicopter parenting them spiritually, they, it will be too much pressure for them to bear and they won't know what to do with it. And it'll be too much for them because you can't idolize your children. You have to, the only way you can enjoy created things in the way that God intended, which he did intend those for our enjoyment, is to put him first on the throne of your heart and to worship him. And to keep him there. God is the only one who can satisfy the soul. And with God at the center of our souls, God is that one who is satisfying our hunger. We then can enjoy all of these things that God has created. This is the way God has ordained it for him to be the one, the center, and everything else to be serving him. It's just the way that God created it. And this is good news for us because God loves us and moves toward us. Tim Keller says this, he says, Good things received without faith in God will enslave or disappoint or turn out to be a snare in some way. The result is always the reverse of what the world expects and seeks. Power ends up being weakness. Success without God is really failure, and time will reveal this. We find that Jesus, again, is only telling us what is true. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. And so it's true. So let's look at this kingdom reversal, the blessing of hunger, where Jesus says the blessing of hunger is that you will be filled, you will be satisfied. So we human beings are in a change or die situation here. If you don't change the love of your heart, if you don't start filling your heart with Jesus instead of these other things, you're in a change or die situation. You, you cannot sustain your life spiritually by plugging in other God substitutes. But research shows that the human heart does not change easily. In fact, one study found that when people are placed in an adapt or die situation or a change or die situation, 90% of people choose dying. 90% of, we hate change. We loathe it. We don't want to change. Ronald Heifetz insightfully said, we have the technology to fix the heart, but we cannot change it. We have the technology to fix the heart, but we cannot change it. So what is the key to heart change at a fundamental behavioral level? How can we actually make the transition to hungering for God instead of hungering for things of the world? Well, Jesus calls us to own or embrace the blessing of hunger. The blessing of hunger. 
Jesus says you need to realize that your true spiritual state is that you are a spiritually hungry man or woman. You were born hungry. You were born hungry. You need to own that. You need to sit in it and to to allow yourself to experience the fact that you are hungry. That's how you were created. And you cannot satisfy your soul by yourself. Do you feel this? Do you feel that you have a soul that must be filled? It is as real as if it's 10 o'clock at night and you've missed dinner. Or to use the analogy of thirst, it's as real as you have just run 8 or 10 miles and you need a drink. It is real. You must. Your soul will be filled. It will be. It's just a matter of where you're going to look to fill that hunger. You are a hungry, thirsty person. You were created that way because God wants you to thirst for him. Jesus says there's a blessing if you are spiritually hungry, but the hunger is not the blessing itself. The hunger leads to the blessing. The hunger causes you to ask the question, what do I need? And if we'll pause long enough to ask that question and stop continually streaming things in, continually filling our lives with other things, we can stop and ask the question, what am I really hungry for? And Jesus says, you're really hungry for me. You're really hungry for righteousness, is what Jesus says. He says righteousness is what the human soul needs. It's what human beings need so badly. And when the Holy Spirit blesses us with the understanding that we are actually hungry and we are hungry for righteousness, Jesus says, that's what I'm here for. That's why I came. Jesus is the righteousness of God. So we ask, what is righteousness and why would I be hungry for it? What is righteousness? What does it mean? Righteousness comes from the Greek word dikaiosene, which means acting in accord with divine or moral law and therefore free from guilt or sin. That is a Merriam-Webster definition. That is not a theological definition. This is what righteousness means. Okay, this is what it means. Acting in accord with divine or moral law and therefore free from guilt or sin. Jesus is not talking about only a righteousness before other people. He's talking about a righteousness before God. Human beings long, though they may not understand it, but they long to be able to stand in the presence of God without guilt, without shame. That's what we long for. That's what we want. We want to be made whole. We want to be made right. We want to have that kind of righteousness before God. And there's two aspects or perspectives on this righteousness before God. So the first kind of righteousness or the first way to look at righteousness is that we are hungry for what is called objective righteousness or imputed righteousness. We hunger to be made right in our standing before God. We long to be made right so that we can stand in God's presence to have what is in us that God would look at us and say, yes, I accept you. But like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when we're in the presence of God, when we're in his presence and we understand that he is holy, 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 it says there, this, this way of underlining and italicizing and bolding, and bolding it for us in the Old Testament, God is holy. He is perfect without sin, completely. Not just without sin, but, but beyond imagination in his perfection compared to us, and we are sinners. And so 
we have this problem that is existing between us and God. We cannot stand on our own in God's presence. You cannot do enough things. You are not completely and totally evil at all. I mean, you do good things, but you, do, you have evil in your life. You have, you have sin in your life. And a lot of world religions, a lot of human beings' perspective is that they can stand in God's presence if at the end of their life or at different points in their life, they've done more good things than bad things, right? But actually, that's not how it works with God. The bad things are a real problem. And even the good things that we've done are laced with sometimes bad motives. I would say the best way to look at yourself is you are a mixed bag. You're a mixed bag. I am too. I've got some good things going on in my life by God's grace, and I've got some things that are really messed up. But before God, if we're honest, we can't stand in God's presence like Isaiah. We say, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, an unclean heart. I can't stand before God on my own. So the question is, has there ever been a person that by the Merriam-Webster definition could on his own moral life, his own way of living, could he stand before God the Father without guilt and shame? And there's only one, and it's Jesus Christ. Only Jesus has ever lived a life on his own merit where he can stand before God the Father and God the Father can look on the Son and say, yes, that is what I'm looking for. No one else can do that. So the question is, can we have what Jesus has? Can we have Jesus instead of us as our righteousness? Is it possible that we could make that exchange so that when God looks at us, instead he looks at Jesus? Is it possible And the good news of the gospel is, yes, it's possible. Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're hungering and you're thirsting for me, I am righteousness, and I can fill and I will fill the hungry soul. Jesus is saying, you can have me instead of all of those other substitutes. What you really want when you're looking for all those things in all the wrong places, you're really looking for me. You're looking for righteousness. You're looking for objective righteousness. And that's only coming through me. And Jesus says, I will give it to you. If you hunger, it's a promise. I will feel, I will fill your soul. I will do it, Jesus says. There's another term theologically we use, imputed righteousness. So God takes the righteousness of Jesus and he puts it in us. And then he, to use an accounting term, he credits that righteousness to our account. So that righteousness, that objective righteousness actually becomes part of who you are as God takes it from Jesus and makes it a part of who you are. You know, when I was growing up, I remember uh, a preacher using this analogy that helped me. Uh, You think of your life like an Oreo cookie. Okay, you got black on the outside and you you got sin going on, black representing sin here. You've got, got the sin in your life. And what, what God does is he takes Jesus like one of these napkins that's covering the, one of these white napkins that's covering the, the bread here, and he covers that Oreo cookie. He covers it up so that when God looks at Jesus, he's, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus covering you like that white napkin. Yeah, you still have sin in your life, and actually there's a little bit of cream in the middle now too, which is nice, right? That, that, that cream, God's at work in you. God is at work in you. We're talking about hunger today, so I thought I'd throw in an Oreo analogy. Um, but you have, you have God at work in you, but when God looks at you, he objectively sees the purity of Christ, the righteousness of Christ revealed in you. But there's something else that happens in the heart of a Christian. 
is this other perspective on righteousness. And this is probably what Jesus was referring to more than objective righteousness. Jesus is also referring to subjective righteousness or transformational righteousness, which he wants to see in the heart of everyone who follows him. And what happens in us is that God puts his spirit in us and we don't just long to be made right with God. We don't just long to have our sins forgiven. We now long to be like God. We want to be more like this God who has given us his righteousness. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and he's had a son who for a number of years has wandered from the faith and has gotten involved in some things sexually and other areas of his life where he has not been following God. And it's been really, really hard on my friend, who's his father. And I asked him the other day, how have you gotten through that time? Because now his son is actually walking with the Lord. Uh, It's an amazing turn around that the Lord has done. Um, And I asked him, I said, "How how have you gotten through this time? He said, you know, Corey, I think about Luke 15 all the time. I think about that father on the road. I think about him looking and waiting for his son. And I think to myself, what is God like? What is it like? What is Jesus like that he would love us like that? And I ask God, Lord, you're the only one who has ever been like that, but I want to be like that. I want to be like that father. I want to be ready when my son comes home, ready to love him. And I thought to myself, that is such a beautiful picture of what God does. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He does that. He doesn't just give us objective righteousness. He now gives us this desire, this hunger to be like him, this hunger to be righteous in the way that we interact with other people and the way that we reflect God in the world. And the Lord does this amazing work in our hearts through giving us objective righteousness, but also transforming us so that we subjectively in real life, in our hearts, more and more what's going on on the inside, it's not just moving from outside in where God gives us his righteousness. Now that righteousness is also moving from the inside out. Jesus says, if you hunger to be righteous, that is me. I will satisfy your hungry soul. What you really want is righteousness. That's me, and I will give it to you and make you more like me. So how do we put that reversal into practice? How do we hunger for Christ? How do we hunger for Christ? Well, there's three application points here for you today. The first one is Jesus has resources available to us in himself that we can barely imagine that will provide all we need, okay? He has resources in himself that we can barely imagine that will provide all we need. I thought often this week, because of what I'm preaching on, of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, how Jesus, as he did in creation, created bread and fish out of nothing. And so what we learn here is that Jesus can physically give us, or out of five loaves and two fish, but basically, I mean, come on, it came, it came from somewhere else. It came from him. Um, and, and he did the same thing in the manna in the wilderness, you know, it says in Deuteronomy 8.3, as Moses is recounting the journey of Israel, and he's, there, he's talking about what the Lord has taught them. He says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, 
But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the lesson here is this. We go from the physical to the spiritual. Jesus is saying, in the Old Testament, I gave you manna. I gave you more than you could physically ever imagine. Falling from the skies, I gave you bread from heaven. And then at the feeding of the 5,000, he literally multiplies bread out so much they couldn't even imagine it. Physically, Jesus has the ability to create and to bless and to multiply all of the blessings that you need. And that is an answer to prayer because we have physical things that we need. And Jesus can give you all of that. But what we need to learn, Jesus says, is what you need to learn spiritually. We have this latent question in our hearts. If I'm hungry for God and I actually admit it, will God actually satisfy my soul? Will he fill up all of those dry and broken cracks in my life with his grace? Is he really enough? Is the spiritual bread from heaven enough for me, for my soul? And the truth of the gospel is, yes, it is. That God longs to bless you and give you what you need, but not just barely enough to give you more than enough, to satisfy you completely. He is able to, to, to take away addiction. He is able to give you what you need in your heart. And you long for whatever that thing is that you've been substituting in. He is able to break that and to fill you with more satisfaction than your soul can imagine. He is able to fill up all of those dry and broken places in our lives because he is the true bread from heaven. The second thing we need to learn is we need to beware the temptation to find comfort in this life from any created thing. It is a warning from Jesus to you. It will not satisfy you. It is never going to work. It will not. One more time won't work, two more times, ten more times, a million more times will not work. It will not work. No combination of created things will work. They will not satisfy your hungry soul. Food, drink, sex, relationships, all of these are good things that God has created. They are good things. The Bible has a word, though, for when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, which is a bad thing, the Bible sometimes talks about an over-desire. And the Greek word for this is epithumia, epithumia. It's taking something that's good, it's a desire, but then it becomes inordinate, and you can't live without it. It becomes an over-desire. It's like envy or covetousness in the soul, and, and you keep on looking to these created things to give you what only God can give you. For, for food, it could be gluttony, like you eat a lot of food, or it could be that you have to have a certain kind of food or the best foods all the time. And you think, if I just have the certain kind of food or the best foods, that's eventually going to satisfy me. It just doesn't work. It could be a drink. It could be soft drinks or an alcoholic drink. And it's not wrong to drink soft drinks or an alcoholic drink, but it's something that if you have to have it and you have to plug it into your heart, then it, it ends up being an issue. Sex, again, it's created by God. It's a good thing. But if you're looking for it in the wrong ways or in the wrong places, it will not satisfy you relationships have already gone into you cannot idolize another person or it will destroy you so how do you know if you are beginning to look for other things in your life as a god substitute how do you know if your soul is beginning to have a warning light on the dashboard that's going off how would you know if you're in a bad place what does that look like 
Well, I think it could look like the fruit of the Spirit in reverse, maybe not all of these, but some of these things start happening in your heart. Instead of love, you might start hating. Instead of joy, you might have cynicism. Instead of peace, you have discontent. Instead of patience, frustration. Kindness, instead of kindness, you have meanness. Instead of gentleness, you start to want to control everything. Instead of faithfulness, you wander from grace. Instead of self-control, you just can't stop hugging yourself or filling your mouth with whatever it is or your soul up with whatever it is. And if you begin to have some of these warning lights going off in your life, again, this is not God in heaven on his holy throne pointing a finger down at you and saying, look, you're, you're controlling, look, you're mean. No, this is grace to you because then you can recognize that, man, you know what? There's something going on. This is not the fruit of the Spirit going on in my life. What is going on? And it's because you're trying to follow God out of filling your life with junk. And so if we don't fill our hearts up with the Lord and with Christ, then we're not going to have the strength to sustain. The final application point today is feed yourself on Christ, the only one who can satisfy you. Feed yourself on Christ, the only one who can satisfy you. So if Christ is the one who can satisfy you, only Christ, how do you do it? How do you fill your heart up with him? Well, today we have the Lord's Supper. Uh, I think I planned it this way a long time ago when I planned this sermon series, but I'm not sure. Um, But as I started thinking about it, um, you know, today the only difference between this moment and every other moment in your life in terms of taking Christ is that you actually have a physical a physical sign and seal of this grace that is given to you through Jesus. You're actually going to get to physically take the, the wine or the juice or the bread that represents Christ. And that's awesome. We're going to take it for real today instead of those packets we've been using for two and a half years. So that's going to be really great. Um, the only difference between this moment and all the other moments of your life is you have this bread and this juice or wine. In every other moment, you still have Christ represented to you. You still have Christ there for you. Here you get to take these physical signs, but there in another situation you may not have the physical signs. But in this situation and all the other situations, the goal is the same. The goal is to take Christ. Is to take How do you do that? How do you feed on Christ? Well, the first thing you could do is you could ask yourself, what have I been feeding on besides Christ? What have I been feeding on? And own it and be like, yeah, man, I've been doing this. I've been, I've been looking to that. And, and again, there's, there's grace for you. So the, the beauty of grace is that it gives you the freedom to repent. And without grace, man, you just have to like constantly act like you're fine because <laughs> uh, you wonder if God will accept you. But God already has accepted you in Christ if you've trusted him. So the beauty of grace is that it frees you to repent. Then you can repent. You can say, yeah, I've been doing this. I've been filling my life up with these things. You can own it. Then after you own it, then you can say, Lord God, Jesus, I believe, I trust in you by faith. I believe that you can fill me up. I believe you can. I believe that you are the bread from heaven. You have enough resources. You you have all the resources that I need spiritually to be not just okay, but actually happy. I mean, the word there is satisfied, which means that you're filled up all the way to the brim so that you need nothing. You need nothing. And that's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise of grace for you is that grace, this kind of grace, really can satisfy your soul. When you think about taking Christ, think about 
the father on the road in Luke 15. Think about him. Think about Jesus going to war against Satan in the desert when Satan is tempting him and Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Think about Jesus saying there in your assurance of parting grace when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Jesus is your righteousness. Think about this Jesus. You take him by faith. You take him in by faith. You trust him. That's another similar word. You trust him. And you believe that he is the one who will fill your hungry soul. Jesus says in his kingdom, people realize they're hungry. And in his kingdom, they realize they're hungry for a righteousness, an objective, and a transformational righteousness that can come by taking in him and him alone. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so excited about the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, Father, I'm just excited that we get to um, actually do this as a community in a way where we get to process uh, for a little bit longer than we have before. That what we're really hungry for, what we're really thirsty for, is you. Lord, we know it's true. Um, In a room this size, people watching online, Lord, there's so many options that we have looked to besides you. Even recently, Lord, and I pray this could be a time when we could let go of those other God substitutes and we could put you on the throne of our hearts again and we could say to you that you are the bread. You are the one who can make us thirst no more and we believe it. I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes that you would free us from some of those other areas that have become a snare to our souls. Father, we long for you, and we love you, and we thank you, Lord, that you didn't just tell us that we were hungry, that you told us that you are the bread of life. You are the righteousness, and we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as the worship team is coming forward, um, this is a, an opportunity for you in just a moment to take the Lord's Supper. So in this meal, uh, what is represented is Jesus Christ. And um, what I want to encourage you to do during the song of preparation, um, I'm going to explain to you how we're going to do this in just a minute so you don't have to think about the logistics. But what I want to encourage you to do in the song of preparation is just to think about what I just said. The sermon is all about the Lord's Supper. It's all about taking Christ. So think about taking Christ. If you've never taken Christ by faith before in your life, then I would encourage you to just take him by faith for the first time right now as you're sitting in your seat. If you've taken him before you're a Christ- and you are a Christian, then I would encourage you to take him by faith right now again in a, in a fresh and empowering way in your soul. And in just a moment after the song of uh, preparation, um, I will encourage us um, to, to come forward and explain that. So during this time, uh, parents, you can go back and get your children. Uh, except for kids in nursery, uh, zero to two, you can leave them back there. We understand that'd be a little bit challenging. Um, and during this time, also, those who are helping serve the Lord's Supper can come and sit on the front row, and I'll give further instructions in just one moment.